I want to start off with something. You know, we're obviously living in some bizarre times, and every week there's a new bizarre type of revelation that we see happening in the world. And last week was a really interesting week for me. Um, with the Israeli conflict, I started listening to the news again, and I was listening to a Senate, you know, they have been going through some of the, on Fox, some of the eyewitness reports, and I got some reports from my friends in Israel about some of the atrocities, and they were quite graphic. And these things reveal a, uh, a level of evil and ferociousness that, you know, is truly demon-inspired, demonic. But I was listening to some of the hearings that took place, I believe it was on the floor of the Senate, with some presidents of some of our most prestigious learning institutions. These are women with doctorates. So the issue is not cerebral. It's not a, a matter of, of the ability of the mind to think. These, these are extremely intelligent people. It truly is a spiritual warfare that we are in right now. It's, it's simply undeniable. And I was listening as one of the senators uh, was clearing president, and I can't unfortunately remember the university. It was either Harvard or one of the other Ivy League schools. And she, she said, um, is the calling for the annihilation of Jewish students on your campus, does that violate your guidelines, your, your standards? And there was nothing but equivocation. There was nothing but obfuscation in her answer. And after the third or fourth time of asking, she said, it depends on the context. And I remember thinking to myself, what context would make it okay to call for the annihilation of an entire people group on your, on your campus. Um, I, I cannot come up with a, with a context that would make that okay. Um, you know, would be calling for the annihilation of all the blacks on your campus. Is there a context that would make that okay? Is there a context calling for the annihilation of the Asian population of your school or Hispanic? Where is this context? I cannot comprehend that answer. And she would never get past it. She talked about free speech. And the sad part is this perception of free speech was handled by the Supreme Court quite a while back. Oliver Wendell Holmes dealt with this concept, and free speech does not cover the calling for the annihilation of an entire people group, 
nor the annihilation of even an individual, the murder of an individual. That is not covered by free speech. She came out the next day and made, made the uh, statement that you know, she was trying to protect the free speech of her student population. And once again, this is the, this is the president of a university, one of the more prestigious ones in our, in our country, and she doesn't know the ruling of the Supreme Court on this part of the Constitution. How do you teach history if you don't know history? History is not made up as we go along. There are, there are actual historical facts. They're real, they exist, and just because you don't recognize them or don't acknowledge them or don't know them, it doesn't change their existence. I, I, I'm flabbergasted. I, I just, I have no, I, I can't get my brain around this kind of an answer from three of the presidents of these universities. And I'm, I'm quite happy that the outrage has been significant and there's a call for their resignation. Um, maybe somebody a little more intelligent can get in there and, you know, strike a path that is, that is a little more truthful, a little more reality. The title of the message today is The Israel Connection. Amongst my people, Moshe was the greatest of all the prophets in Tanakh. Tanakh, is a, for those who are new, is, is an acronym for Torah, what we call the law, uh, Nevaim, and the Ketuvim, the prophets and the writings. He was God's first anointed one, the first Mashiach. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed one. He was the first one to bring God's words to man and to bring Israel forth from bondage. He set them free. He was the first Roe Israel, the first shepherd of Israel. And in my faith, in the faith of many of my people, it was Messiah who was the one that Moshe met on Mount Sinai when he first ascended to hear the voice that, that sprang forth from the bush that burned without being consumed, as well as when he entered into the cloud of consuming fire and came into the presence of God and was given the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments of God. Moshe and Yeshua would meet again. I mean, it was Yeshua who ministered to Moshe on Mount Sinai, the Mount of Transfiguration, Moshe was one of those who ministered to Yeshua on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Numbers chapter 27, Moshe is brought up to the top of a mountain to see the land that God is going to bring Israel into. He's not going to be allowed into it because of a, what most people would consider a relatively minor sin. He hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and he was prohibited from entering into the land of Israel. But he is shown it. 
And he is commanded to choose Yehoshua, Joshua, who was a man possessed by Haruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, to lead the people into the land. Moses' prayer in Numbers chapter 27, verse 16, reads this way. Let the Lord God of all spirits of flesh put a man over the congregation, speaking of Yehoshua. The Hebrew word for congregation is here, idot. And it comes from the same word as testimony. A congregation is essentially a group of people who share the same testimony about God. That's what a congregation is. They speak with a single wind, a single breath, a single voice about the God they serve. And this was done to keep Israel strong in the spirit, in the Ruach, in the holy wind of God. That their testimony would endure the trials that are ahead on this path that God has, has laid out for us. To avoid a condition that they suffer from in Exodus chapter nine, uh, 6, verse 9, where it says, Israel did not listen to Moshe for the anguish of their spirit due to cruel bondage. The anguish of their spirit, their spirits were depressed or suppressed by the hard labor that we suffered in Egypt, the hard labors during the first part of our journey. And the words anguish of their spirit is literally in the Hebrew, which means a shortness of breath. There was a shortness of God's breath within them. Suffering, tribulation, cause that breath of God to be depressed inside. Yeshua speaks of this also in the New Covenant. It says, because of tribulation, the love of many will become cold. There is a depression of God's spirit and the manifestation of God's spirit in our lives, the word love. We'll see this in just a moment. In John 17, Yeshua is praying for his disciples. It's, it's come to be known as the high priestly prayer of Yeshua. He's, praying, he's about to be glorified. He's about to die, which will release the light of his presence from this container. And he's praying to his father. He has some very specific prayers for the body of Messiah. In verse 8, he speaks about our heritage. What is the heritage of the people of God? The heritage is words. Words spoken from the mouth of God and heard by the ears of man. Yeshua says, the words you gave me, speaking to his father, I have given to them. And they received them. And they truly understood that I came from you and that you have sent me. In verse 20, Yeshua broadens his prayer to include us, those of us who sit here today. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their words, 
that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we have this inheritance of words from God's mouth. Those were given to Yeshua. Yeshua gave them to his disciples. The disciples conveyed them to us. Unfortunately, Yeshua's prayer, his desire that we be one new man, speaking with one breath, has only met with limited success. The book of Acts reveals a number of conflicts between the believers. Many of those conflicts were resolved. Many never were. You remember Paul and Mark had a, had a big disagreement. They ended up reconciling with one another. Paul and Barnabas never did. It represents a failure. The people of God cannot resolve a difference. That's a failure. We're doing something that is outside of the procedure God gave to us. See, amongst men, there is a peace that comes from compromise. I give up something, you give up something, and we come together and we can agree. Well, that doesn't last. It never has. It can't. Why? Because all parties lose something. I have given up something, you've given up. God's plan for rec reconciliation is a little, little different. I give up everything. You give up everything. And we take upon ourselves the mind of God. Then we are of one mind. His. Our testimony, the Ida, was weakened because of the divisions amongst us. Those from the nations who believe in Yeshua have been grafted in to the body of Messiah. And as part of the commonwealth of Israel, they share in the blessings and the faith of Abraham. Israel is still one of the biggest points of division within the body of Mashiach. There is a substantial remnant of the body of Messiah that recognizes this relationship and rejoices in their heritage. They recognize that the destiny of the body of Messiah is inextricably tied to the destiny of Israel. When a nation blesses Israel and allows them to prosper, that nation is blessed as well. When that nation turns their face from Israel, that nation suffers a fall from greatness. This happened to the Holy Roman Empire when it just discarded everything Jewish from the new faith. It happened to the empire of Babylon where Jews fled the persecution of Rome in the first century. It happened to each of the European nations that first blessed and welcomed Jews into their country and then turned and began to persecute them. Each one of them in turn fell from the greatness that they enjoyed. It's happening now in America. The wealth and influence of our nation is being diminished daily around the world as we distance ourselves from Israel. I was quite happy 
when Biden came out and said, we support Israel's right to defend itself, I was also rather astonished at how quickly that was walked back a little bit. It wasn't too many weeks after that statement. Well, yeah, you can defend yourself, but you, you, you can't hurt any civilians. What war in the history of all wars is there where civilians were not injured? I am unaware of any. There is always collateral damage. That's why reasonable and sane people don't choose war as their first option. People die. War is ugly and ugly and it's a horrible condition to be in. It changes everybody in it, the victor and the defeated. You can't take another life and not be changed. It's the way it is. There's an innocence lost. There's a purity lost. It's just a fact. The voices of hate seem to want to inhibit Israel's defense of their citizens. And I'll tell you, my friend sent me an email. There were 1,500 witnesses of the atrocities of Hamas on October 7th. And each one of them testified before the, the Knesset. It was all in Hebrew. And until last week or the week before, these testimonies were not made public. You didn't hear about them. My friend translated it in all of its graphic detail. And if you see the responses of Israel, you can see the rage that sits under, especially uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He, he speaks and he's, he's reserved. But in his eyes, you can see the rage. You can't do this to our women. The things that are written there are so horrific, I couldn't possibly bring myself to speak of them here. I encourage you to read it because truth is truth. Sometimes it's brutal, but it's still truth. When I sent my son off to fight in Iraq, I sent, I, we sat down and watched the videos of the beheadings. I wanted him to know who it is he is facing in battle. He needed to understand that. It was horrible, but it's the truth. It's reality, and he needed to know that. A few weeks back, I mentioned that as a Jew, I find little security in this world. Even in America, our position as, a, as Jewish people, is in constant flux, as we can see presently. I mean, it, it was only a few days after October 7th that we became that, the hated ones once again. There is an old descriptive phrase, the wandering Jew. It's quite accurate, actually. It's most often used as a diminutive, but our wanderings have typically been either escapes from persecution or forced expulsion. 
we are either kicked out or we seek to escape because we're being murdered. This has happened within Israel as well as within the dispersion, the diaspora, those nations we have been exiled to. Our situation is always precarious, tenuous. No matter what we do, no matter how we behave, we are seen through the eyes of suspicion. If we assimilate into a culture, becoming successful, we are seen as controlling the nation from behind the scenes, We're in the shadows, pulling strings, manipulating the leadership. If we hold to ourselves and live a life of Torah observance, we are seen by the nations that we're dispersed into as being separatists, and we suffer the most despicable rumors and stories of any people to ever walk the face of the earth. My personal favorite is blood libel, where Jews were accused of kidnapping and killing Christian babies in order to take their blood to make matzah. We laugh today. It's not funny. It was believed. Now, I'm not much of a cook. I guess the most you can say about my cooking is it doesn't kill you right off. It's kind of a slow, methodical process, wasting away, painful from what I've observed. But even I know the recipe for matzah, flour and water. I don't know where the blood comes from. But reason is not, does not rule the day. This was a spiritual issue, and many believed that Jews actually kidnapped, killed, and used the blood of, of infants to make matzah. My precious wife is appalled by the rantings against the Jews right now. I am also. When I read the accounts, it's hard to describe. In fact, it's impossible to describe what I felt of what was done to these women, to the babies, there's, there's no word to describe the feeling, the reaction. But this is the reality of being Jewish. This simply is not our first rodeo. We've been here everywhere. There's an old Jewish joke that came from the vaudevilles. Most of those boys and girls were were Jewish, the Vaudevillians, and um, they talk about the uh, Reader's Digest, the condensed version of the story of Passover. They came to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. It describes the, it's the condensed version of the history of the, of, of the nation of Israel. We use humor to, to cope with this condition. 
there is this benign resignation to our condition in the world. We, we don't like it, but it is reality. And it's the same condition that is shared by believers, however, not always recognized by believers. You know, we, we live in America. Here we have prosperity gospels, and we're told that God loves us if we have our new car. Around the rest of the world, believers are having their heads separated from their bodies. They're imprisoned. This little microcosm is not the condition of the rest of the body of Mashiach. There is persecution going on out there. We just don't like to read about it. Our wanderings are inherited from the lives of the founding fathers of our faith, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Our language actually reflects this condition. Israel has spent only a fraction of our existence in the land promised to us by God. We are always either preparing to leave or preparing to return. In Hebrew, this condition is illustrated by the word bo. In Hebrew, the word bo means to come and it means to go, which is why people don't think the Jews know whether they're coming or going, because we don't. We know we're moving, but we don't know if we're coming or going. We're always preparing to go to a land or come into that land. Our rabbis contemplate this condition a great deal, and the conclusion, although it's expressed in numerous different ways, is essentially Israel is a nation in this world, but not of it. One of the more brilliant minds to emerge from amongst my people is a man called Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs, he was the chief rabbi of England. He died here uh, about a year ago. Simply a brilliant man and a, a prolific writer. And he assembled a group of words in a particular order to give us greater insight into the nature of what Israel is. To be a Jew means not to be fully at home in this world. To be a Jew means to live within the tension that exists between heaven and earth, creation and revelation, the world that is, and the world we are called on to make. Between exile and home, and between the universality of the human condition and the particularity of Jewish identity. Jews don't stand still except when we stand before God, the God of the universe. From galaxies to subatomic particles, <coughs> the universe is in constant motion, and so is the Jew. We are an unstable combination of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. And this causes us to constantly make decisions and choices that will make us grow to be as big as our ideals, or if we choose wrongly, to make us shrivel into small, petulant creatures obsessed by trivia. That is a brilliant collection of words. 
and it accurately describes the condition and the life of those who call upon Hashem, the name of God. It is an accurate portion of the nation and the people who are called by the name of Avraham's grandson, Yaakov, whose name was changed to Israel. This is the condition inherited by the body of Messiah. The body of Messiah faces those same choices. The life of Yaakov is one of constant motion, fleeing from one danger to the next. The call of Israel, both the man and the nation, is primarily to make the journey between earth and heaven, to rise up, to climb the ladder that Yaakov saw in his dream. I spoke on this a few weeks ago. Yaakov was given a vision of the final destination of God's people in Genesis, where a ladder descends from the heavens and it's seated on the earth. Yaakov is shown there, Shacha Shemayim, the gate of heaven, and Betel, the house of God. And that is the vision that sustains man in this life. That keeps him on what is oftentimes an arduous path. In the darkest of times when all hope appears to be vanishing from this world, we ought to look up, for from above does our redemption appear. This is precisely illustrated in the life of Stefan, who when he was about to be executed, he was about to be glorified, he was about to die. He looks up and beholds, Yeshua is standing at the right hand of the throne of glory, and he tells the people that they must have gone insane. And they finished the job they had started earlier. This is the darkness and the light that is contained in the story of Hanukkah. Those who value God more than their lives here reveal God's eternal light in this world. And those who value their lives and the things of the world more than God diminish that brilliance, that glorious light. This appears to be the struggle of man in this world, to maintain the purity of the truth first delivered by God and to resist its pollution, its dilution, Jews and believers share this most profound thought. The first and most important command of God is love. Everything else in the word of God is commentary. It is singular. It stands singular. There's a singularity to it. It's a thread that weaves throughout the word of God, connecting it, joining it together. Love is by far the most powerful force in the universe. Love will cause a person 
to take their eyes off of themselves and often at great cost bless someone else. Strange behavior. Love will propel a, a person to heights that are simply unimaginable. Acts of altruism that leave others in awe. Acts of bravery that inspire others to action. Love is responsible for behavior that oftentimes appears to show an utter disregard for a person's well-being, his condition in this world, and it does. But in reality, it reveals a greater regard, a greater love for their life in another kingdom, the kingdom of God. We have in our society people we call heroes, people who act in such a way that it defies any kind of reason. One man will throw him himself on a hand grenade so that his battle buds are not injured. He will charge a machine gun nest. He will do things that place himself in extreme danger so that his buds don't have to be. It's not that he holds his life cheap. If that's what you think, you have missed the entire point. It's because there is no greater love than the one who will lay down his life for his friends. He loves those others so much that he's willing to stand in harm's way so that they don't have to. It's love that motivates that kind of behavior, not disregard. Paul quantifies the three great motivations that govern the lives of God's people. And he says, right now, three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Faith is transient. I have faith in Yeshua right now. When he returns and I see him, I don't have to have faith in Yeshua anymore. I can see him. Faith is the evidence of what is not seen. Once I see him, I don't have to waste any faith believing that he exists. I see him. I have a hope that Yeshua will return today. I have that same hope yesterday, and I will have that same hope tomorrow if he doesn't return today. Once he returns, I would be insane if I continued to hope for his return. Love is the only thing we take from this physical existence into eternity. The love of God and the love of one another. The fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. However, if the hatred of evil was God's primary concern, there would be no flesh. 
No, no flesh left at all. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. There is none righteous, not a single one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They have all turned to the side. They are altogether unprofitable. There is none who do good. No, not one. That doesn't leave a little, that doesn't leave any wiggle room. You can't try to insert yourself into the good category because there's a solid, solid wall. There, no, there is not one. God's love for us overcomes his hatred of the evil we do. It is the definition of grace. It is the definition of mercy. I never understood that until I had a child. <laughs> to be able to love something with a love that seems endless and yet still want to kill it. <laughs> And all the mothers and daughters are laughing. It's extraordinary. The Apostle Yochanan focuses on love more than any other disciple of Yeshua. John, First uh, John 1, 4. If any man says he loves God yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this commandment, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's one of the reasons that God said we shouldn't make images. You want to see the image of God? Look in the mirror. You were created, Selim, Elohim, in the image of the Lord. We don't need to make an image, an idol. Turn to your left, turn to your right. That brother or sister sitting next to you, the image of God. And I have seen God in some of his people when my heart was broken. When my soul was being ripped In the times when people would come up to minister to me, and I could see God's face in their eyes. It's all we're called to do. Two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's true in Judaism. It's true in Christianity. Why? Because both faiths, quote-unquote, emerged from the same mouth. The ten words spoken at Sinai teach us how to love God and man. The first four describe behavior that will show love for God. And the, the next six describe behavior that will reveal the love that we have one for another. But it's still about love. Without God's Torah, without his instructions, men are left with nothing but 
violence towards one another, a viciousness. The defining characteristic of Noah's generation is revealed in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. And the earth was filled with Hamas. The word Hamas means violence. His group chose that name to identify themselves. <coughs> Men held an utter disregard for the welfare of others. Their thoughts, in the words of Rabbi Sachs, are of petulant little children seeking their own gain, trivia, meaningless little baubles that we accumulate in this world. You have something I want, I kill you to get it. Simple. The only way you stop me, you kill me to stop you, to stop me from taking what you have. Apart from God, that's the way men behave, one towards another. We're watching it. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's the way with nations. One nation sees something that another nation has. They go and they invade it. James spoke about this 2,000 years ago. From where come wars and, and murders amongst you? Do they not come from the lust that war within your members? You lust and don't have, so you kill to get. It's not really that that difficult a philosophy to, to grasp, to wrap your mind around. It's, it's real simple. In one of the more op ominous predictions of Yeshua, in Matthew 24, he tells us that the last days will be like the days of Noach. The earth will be again filled with violence. The violence is symptomatic of something else. It is a symptom. It is not a cause. What will precede the violence? Verse 12, because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. As love evaporates, violence is all that is left. Believers will become indifferent to one another. They will turn over others to escape the wrath of this world, and in so doing, incur the wrath of God. Matthew 24 is not speaking to the world. He's speaking to believers. The same thing was stated by Solomon in Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Happy is he who keeps the Torah. That's not an exact translation by any means. Where there is no vision, chazon, revelation, the people are para, unrestrained. The revelation he's talking about is a revelation at Sinai, where God revealed the ten words to govern our behavior. Those ten words are to restrain the evil that we are naturally prone to. to show us another way to live, a life that is restrained.
The law of God is precisely what restrains people from behaving like the nations that came before Israel. I have been rebuked many times for the formula of prayer for the Jewish people. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by the commandments. Oh, no, we're not sanctified by the commandments. We're not under the law. We're not sanctified. We're not made holy by the commandments. We're made holy by the blood of Yeshua. Yes, we are, who reiterated the commandments given to Israel at Sinai. We're no longer under law. Being from New York and simply steeped in sarcasm, my first response is always, give me your wallet. This is, that is a ludicrous statement. The only time you are confined by no law is when you are absolutely alone. As soon as there's the introduction of another human being, another animal, anything else, there are rules that govern your behavior and your relationship with that other thing, whatever it is, even the earth. There are rules. Of course we're under law. It's not good for me to murder, commit adultery, to steal. Of course not. Perhaps a better translation, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who distinguishes us by our behavior. That is a perfectly valid translation. The word kadosh means to separate. We are separated by our behavior. I am not the way I used to be. My behavior is different. Like James says, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith through my works. The beast of Revelation is referred to by Paul as the man of lawlessness. No restraints upon him. Disregards entirely God's instructions. And therefore the cruelty he is capable of is unimaginable. The images of October 7th and the descriptions reveal the first sprinklings of the flood that is coming against the woman and her child. I encourage you to pray as I do every day. Lord, give me strength that my ruach, my spirit, or my breath would not become short that I would be able to stand against the onslaught that is already here. More is coming, but we're already here. And the decisions that you have to make will either elevate you to the greatness of your ideals or shrivel you up become petulant and people who seek after trivial 
matters, little baubles, treasures in this world. These choices have always been with us, but they're more pronounced when the days get darker. And the days are getting darker. Father, thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. To not be fooled as you want us. Your words are true forever, for they are the same forever. We change, you do not. Strengthen us in these days, Lord God. Let our eyes be cast towards the heavens, that the light of your presence would be seen by all. In Yeshua's precious name, amen.